Well, good morning, everybody, and welcome. Welcome to the final day of the 5th Dungog Film Festival. My name is Laura MacDonald. I've been doing a lot of talking, so I'm very husky. So, what an incredible journey, everybody. It's been just in so many ways for us all, it's been a very, very special weekend. Thank you for being here this morning. I'm very, very proud to be here with this wonderful panel of talented filmmakers and very, very proud to be hosting this special iTunes Meet the Filmmaker panel. Now, I'd like to begin down the end with Mr. Peter Phelps. I'm going to introduce you to each of um, our panellists um, and tell you a little bit about them, and then we're going to open up the discussion. And I really want to encourage everybody to ask questions. Um, we really want to hear from you guys. I, I've done so much talking this weekend. Um, I don't think you need to hear much more from me. So I'll just introduce these guys, get kick off the discussion, and then please raise your hand. We would love questions from everybody. Um, so Peter is a much-beloved actor. He's worked tirelessly on the small and the big screen. He started out on the teen soap opera The Restless Years for Channel 10. Then he went on to star in the popular drama series Sons and Daughters. And I have to say, I can still hear that soundtrack in my head all these years later. <laughs> you um, could be here for a while if you go right through it. I'm right? not going <laughs> <laughs> to go through everything, oh, I promise. Um, but his other well-known roles in, uh, read like a best of Aussie TV list, um, A Country <laughs> Practice, Flying Doctors, GP, All Saints, Underbelly, and most recently Rescue Special Ops. Uh, we're not forgetting his six years on Stingers, which won him a Logie for his most popular actor in 2002. So Peter's also starred in more than a dozen feature films, including Stone Brothers, which premiered here at the Dungog Film Festival in 2009. Um, Ned Kelly, The Light Horseman, Playing Biddy Bo, Lantana, and so many more. Um, he's also featured on the American Small, Small and Big Screens, uh, with a starring role in the first season of Baywatch. Does everyone remember that? And even... <laughs> Something Pete might rather forget. <laughs> <laughs> He's all, he also even had a part in that cult blockbuster film Point Break So ladies and gentlemen, please welcome me in giving Peter a, a very particularly warm welcome um, As his wife was taken very ill yesterday uh, Thank God she's better today and we're very very grateful that he um, such a trooper and came along today So thank, please welcome Peter Now, I'm next going to talk about um, the gentleman to my direct left. Um, I'm sure many of you have heard of our next panellist, um, Mr Gregory Reed. but for those who haven't, we have a seriously multi-talented, multitasker, multi-platformer in our midst. Um, writer, director, editor, cinematographer and producer extraordinaire. Greg has a documentary film in the festival and it's called Rocket Compulsion. It's actually screening today at 2.30 at the RSL. So if you have time and you can make it over, please do go check out Greg and his amazing team behind that project. Um, he also he directed that, but he was also simultaneously producing Fred Skepsi's new film, The Eye of the Storm, which is hotly anticipated. And as you may know, it stars Charlotte Rampling, Jeffrey Rush, and a host of other, wonderful other Australian actors, including Fred's seriously talented daughter, Alexandra. Now, she premiered her debut film as director here last year, One Night, and she actually sat on one of these illustrious panels last year, so I wanted to make a special mention of her in that film. Um, now, Greg's produced a diverse selection of projects. In fact, his diversity is pretty astounding. Um, not only is he an acclaimed documentarian, but his future debut, which he wrote and directed like mine's, was an English-Australian co-production, but it was also had the Weinstein Company involved, Lionsgate, Screen Australia, Canal Plus, um, putting those deals together, I tell you, I know a bit about it, and they're not easy. Um, so it got a lot of award nods when I was actually living in England, so I remember it really well. But um, this film actually scored Greg a Hollywood agent, I believe, yes. um, and it starred Tony Collette and Richard Roxburgh amongst an international cast. And Greg has also worked extensively in helping to get indie features off the ground. In fact, I just found out that he's uncredited in a documentary that was here on Friday called Charles Blackman, an imprint in time. I think he let the filmmaker Daz in. Um, he, he said he let him into the office, and five years later, he was still there. <laughs> um, so please, can we give Greg Reed a very warm Dungog welcome? Thank you. Our third panellist hardly needs an introduction, but she's going to get one. <laughs> uh, Secret Thornton is one of our most beloved actors, and her list of credits is truly astonishing. Uh, on the small screen, she's topped the ratings with Sea Change. She's rocked the King's Cross to the core in the most recent Underbelly series. She's been incarcerated with all those mad bitches in Prisoner. <laughs> the list goes on and on, and the awards and the nominations, they've been abundant. Um, yesterday, we, th we saw three different sides to Sigrid. We saw her pitch-perfect 
portrayal of the feisty young Jessica Harrison in The Man from Snowy River, uh, which followed her breakout role in uh, Bruce Beresford's The Getting of Wisdom. We also saw her star with Jack Thompson in the beautiful short film The Telegram Man, and I see the director, James Cutie, at the back there. Welcome, James. Um, and then we witnessed, uh, I believe, Poetry in Motion with Michael Reimer's brilliant film, new film, Face to Face, which uh, was a sneak preview yesterday. I hope some of you got to see that. Now, Secrets also had sell-out theatrical tours, like more recently The Blue Room with Marcus Graham, where she had to bear all to audiences all around Australia. Um, but Secret also served on the boards of a variety of arts organisations like the Malthouse Theatre um, and Film Victoria. She's raised millions for the Victorian Arts Centre Trust, and she's even sung, I believe, with Opera Australia. Is that true? That's, uh, yeah, a little night music, yeah. yeah. Um, Secret was one of the very first Aussie actors to ever take the lead role in an American network television series with Paradise, and that was made by veteran producer Sir David Jacobs of Dallas and Knott's Landing. Um, I ask you, ladies and gentlemen, who, what can't this woman do? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> it's an honour to have you here with us at the 5th Dungog Film Festival, Secret Thornton. So we're talking uh, today um, about really what it's like to cross-pollinate between different sized screens, because not only do we have the silver screen and we have our television screens, but as everybody here knows, the internet is unstoppably taking over in terms of how we watch content. And um, I'd love to um, start off by actually asking Greg, because he's got a, his project that we're talking about this afternoon, Rocket Compulsion, he's actually created um, a documentary that's a standalone documentary that's being distributed on the Discovery Channel. He's created separate webisodes, webisodes that are fresh content, completely separate from the documentary for that audience. He's created um, a game with Screen Australia's backing. So he's, he's, he really defines multi-platform. And I just wanted to, to say, Greg, you've just produced Eye of the Storm. You're here with a TV series, I mean, I mean a TV um, documentary, and you've done these, this uh, web series. How would you describe one of the biggest challenges of going between these different size screens? What for you as a producer, director, I mean, you've obviously got lots of different points of view, but what comes to mind are some of the biggest challenges? You know, the funny thing about it is that I actually find, whether I'm working on a little screen or the big screen, whether it's internet or whether it's a, you know, a, a large drama project, very similar. Um, it's... Uh, it's, it's kind of a strange kind of balance between, you know, working on a film set where I may have 100 or 120 people working with me and then getting in a plane and flying off to, you know, to England or to America to actually do a, um, you know, a shoot where I'm actually shooting it as well as directing it as well as doing the sound and, you know, making my own cups of tea. So, you know, and I kind of treat them all very, very similarly. I, mean, I don't look at a big difference between the two in mm. a strange kind of way. I mean, the biggest challenge is going to be the size of the crew, obviously, and there's a, there are pros and cons with all that. I mean, when you're working with 120 crew, you've got all the things that slow you down, where if you're out there on a set and you're trying to do it all yourself, then obviously you want to get that mic in another position or you want to get, you know, a reflector board out and you've got to hang it off a tree. I remember this one shoot in, in New York and I... <laughs> You know, I thought it'd be a great place to do a shoot, and I, I was doing sound and everything else, and I had the camera, I set it all up, and then the wind came up, and I had my flecky, it was in a tree, and of course, it started flying across through New York, and I had to go chasing after it, leaving <laughs> the poor person behind. And I think, if I just had one assistant, somebody, <laughs> help me. Anybody. Anybody, help. The homeless because man down the street. You can imagine all the Americans looking at this guy rushing through this park in New York mm -hmm. after this white thing flecking through the air. But I you tell know. you what, they're so used to it, though. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I, I went to film school for uh, uh, nine months in uh, in NYU, and um, and we were shooting these little films, and, and it, it, it literally were homeless guys in Washington Square would hold the flicky boards for us. Yeah. Like, so what's this one? I about? needed one of those guys. <laughs> <laughs> and so yeah, but, uh, maybe maybe sort of dungle might be different. Yeah. To, to, I think I think one of the main differences is going to be the um, you know the the way you promote you're presenting the. Um, the media, you know, who is your audience? Who are you trying to focus towards? You know, are you doing something which is for the big screen for, for theatrical release, or are you doing something for, you know, uh, as a web app? And I mean, I do think they have their own sensibilities. I do think they all have their own, you know, nuances that are, you know, very, you know, very relevant. And I think you've got to take them in consideration. But I think you just got to get into the space, really. Mm -hmm. And once you're in that space and you know what you're actually planning to do, then just go for it. Mm -hmm. Secret, I'm just wondering, um, having started out. I mean, I know that you 
have worked all your mm. life in in lots of different mediums and platforms, but having really started out as very much a feature film actress, it seems to me, um, when you were the offers started flooding in to do so many different things, I can imagine. What was there quite a big stigma about doing TV back then? Do you think? Well, actually, I, I, I just uh, uh, hate to correct you in any oh. way, shape, or form, but no, no, no. I, I'm really talking about my sort of training ground, Laura. Mm -hmm. Wasn't was in fact TV because oh. I started. Um, acting professionally as a child, really, and um, I'd probably been acting from about the age of seven or eight, un unprofessionally. <laughs> I was terribly unprofessional. <laughs> no, but I, I'd been doing sort of you know, school drama workshops and theatre workshops and um, one-act plays in amateur theatre and this and that and whatever I could lay my hands on, basically. But I started working for Crawford Productions at about 13, um, and I did the whole gamut of the police shows, which were all single camera, so it was an amazing training ground for, for film, really. But um, are you saying that what, what's the I guess the what I wanted to question? explore Sorry. really is the, the stigma. <laughs> yeah, the stigma yeah. about film and telly. Yeah, I guess it's a bit of a bugbear for me, really, um, the, the stigma that's been attached to TV up until relatively recently. I think television is seen to have, you know, in, insanely seen to have sort of come of age. I, I, I guess, um, for, to my mind, they, they do sort of the same thing and yet rather different mm. things, Greg. Mm. Uh, I think that um, the the huge advantage with television is it's still the, the most most valuable uh, means of mass communication uh, for the narrative form that we have. And uh, and so that, you know, a lot more people see television. And uh, there, there's never been any reason, to my mind, why that there should be any stigma attached to that. Mm. But there has been, um, I think, uh, strangely enough, a kind of... Um, sort of, and I wouldn't even call it inverted snobbery, but a little bit of snobbery about the big screen in, uh, in, the, uh, in the Australian industry to date. And I think it existed in the, in the States as well, but I think what's changed is that the, the nature of filmmaking has changed. It's become a much more, it, it's always been very labour intensive and therefore a very expensive business. But um, if you use the United States as, a, as an example, and we do tend to sort of take our lead from them, uh, what's happening at the moment with the uh, sort of relative demise of independent films as a result of the economic downturn and the massive increase in, in pressure on, on studios to make big popcorn movies, massive sort of shoot 'em up um, explosive films. Um, there, there's, uh, there's been a shift away from uh, uh, movies by in the, on the part of the, the really talented uh, writers and directors and there's been a massive shift into television. Uh, with with uh, out, outlets like HBO and Showtime, so you know a lot of the big talent is actually shifting because they, they can take more risks. Mm. They're given the opportunity to take more risks, still with relatively big budgets, mm. I might say. Uh, and so so there's been this big sort of you know sort of shifting paradigm, I think actually. And to some extent, we've taken our lead from from that, I think, mm. uh, which has been a very good thing in my mm. view. Absolutely. Yeah, we're seeing it now with Cloud Street, and um, I think we're as we do. We follow the patterns of America uh, in our in our filmmaking and and our television programming. Um, now that we have our cable st uh, independently making films uh, and series like Cloud Street, we are following that. So, uh, what it comes down to as an actor really is um, employment and mm. the quality of employment, uh, the quality of the show you're on. Um, Not just for actors, by the way, for everybody. Well, some, yeah, I know. Sometimes you, you sometimes you you, you don't. Uh, quite pick and choose what you want to. Um, it, it'll be like uh, you, you want to uh, just w you want to work with certain people, and you get the chance. Like say Cloud Street, there was a, a lot of actors wanted to be in that, um, and and it's, uh, they've got the right people. It's great, but um, you know we, when it comes to us, um, TV and film, uh, what we do, we, there, there was a stigma, but it, it did change, and I think it was because. What Sigrid said was about um, HBO and all the, the Showtime and um, the, the cable um, stations independently producing and, and you know, mm. we've gravitated towards that. I, I think it's also mm. because you're now able to watch television whenever you want. You can just download an app, you can borrow someone's DVD, you can pop it in, you don't have to deal with those bloody ads anymore. I remember as a child just dreaming about being able to fast forward the ads. I never actually thought it would happen. Mm. But talk to me a little bit about that from your point of view, Greg. I mean, the, the, the actual, the accessibility of content. Well, I think ultimately if you're making a film, I mean, if say for the big screen, you're making it for the small screen. I mean, you really are, because more people are going to see it on the small screen than they're ever going to see it on the big screen. Mm -hmm. So I mean, every time we make a film, we always consider that, that it's going 
going to be made for television or for, you know, or internet or however it's going to be downloaded or, or whatever. So you've got to look at that content and you want to be able to cross over to be able to make sure that everything you do will work on, on that screen. So I guess that's why when we talk about me in perspective to looking at what I do as a documentary or a feature film, they're actually all ending up in the same place. Mm. And I mean, the, ultimately, we're trying to make films which will, you know, access an audience and, uh, and we want to access as many people as possible so that they get an opportunity to enjoy the programming that we make. So, you know, that's, it's really important. I think if you're trying to make a film just for cinema, I think you're kind of missing the point. I think, you know, your audience is actually out there on the internet now. I mean, that is your audience. So, and it will be more and more like that. You're, and you're increasingly more the camera operator or the uh, DOP um, will we'll be saying, uh, is this TV safe when they're shooting a shot? You know, <laughs> so, you know if, you, if you have a look through the lens, you'll see TV safe. Uh, there'll be like, you know, the frames of a cinema frame with widescreen and a, and a squarer one for TV. And you'll, you'll hear it more and more that the, the, the operator will say, yeah, it's TV safe, so mm-hmm. go with that shot because the, you, know, if you, you don't want to lose the, the shot that will go eventually to TV, so it's, mm. it's wider. I think there's another point that I, I just before if I get to make it, it's slightly tangential actually, but on, uh, it's a bit of a riff, but it's about um, sustainability of the industry in general in Australia. We have a very small population here relative to the other Western, you know, English-speaking countries which are, who are making films. And, uh, and therefore, it's always been, and Peter alluded to this, it's always been the prerogative of the actor, not the prerogative, <laughs> outside the prerogative of the actor actually, to make choices about their career. So in other words, you, know, you have to, um, to some extent, uh, you have to cross-pollinate, you have to work across all of the mediums. You have to be a theatre actor, a television actor and a film actor if you want to be a working actor in Australia. And, uh, and, and the same goes for across-the-board practitioners in Australia. So really, uh, I suppose the point I'm trying to make is that without a healthy, a really healthy television industry, we, we, we can't sustain a healthy t- uh, film industry. They, they must, by, by um, necessity, cross-pollinate. They, they, you know, the, w- television must provide a healthy training ground for not just for, for, for writers, actors um, and, and directors and producers, but across the board, for practitioners across the board. And um, I, I think this is a, a really... Uh, it's, a, it's something that's, that's often overlooked in discussion about, about film and television because we compare ourselves overly to the, to the uh, American industry. And, and we really do have a, a very different mechanism here and, and to the extent that it's, it's, it's a much smaller mechanism and we, uh, and we need to kind of... Um, we need to, you know, bounce off one another. And we also need to bounce ideas off one another, really. You know, we need to ha- be a sort of... Because we're, we're a small population of practitioners, we need to, we need to be, uh, form a creative pool and sort of incubate together. We can't afford to be mutually exclusive. We, we can't specialise as actors, anyway. <clears throat> Sorry, in Los Angeles and New York, where I, uh, I have lived and worked, um, I knew I knew actors that were only did voiceovers. Um, they hadn't worked in film or TV for ten years, and uh, well, living on um, residual checks and whatever. But they they specialised in voiceovers, and they didn't do any screen work. We can't do you can't do that here. Um, you have to be able to do voices, voiceovers, film, TV. Theatre, uh, radio, the whole thing. You've got to, you know, to, if, if it's your living. So um, we, we cross pollinate by um, definition. It's a bit yeah. like the old days when actors had to be able to sing and dance as well. Yeah. You know? well I mean, you know, yeah, look, absolutely. And it can be a long time between drinks. I mean, our biggest thing is that um, you have to be developing a slate of work all the time. I mean, you could be doing, you know, eight or nine or ten projects at any given time because you've got to, because not all of them will come off. I mean, you, you're very aware of that. So, I mean, last year was not the ideal time to be doing a documentary and doing the film at the same time because I was kind of jumping between the two. And it was, but you have to. Yeah. And, um, you know, we all want to work, you know. How do you remain sane directing a documentary and producing Fred Skepsi's new film? Well, you asked me about, about producing Fred Skepsi? Um, <laughs> I wasn't um, really alluding to that. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it's a secret. <laughs> um, you know, it's a, it, it's a, I mean, everything's a, it has its own um, challenges. But it's, a, you know, I think, you know, really it was, for me, it was, uh, it was a unique experience to be able to do that. And mm-hmm. I, I was so, you know, lucky to be given that opportunity to be able to, you know, work with someone who, you know, who I think is an amazing director, like Fred, and then go off and, you know, and then do, as I said, a documentary where you've got reality television. I mean, it was, um, you know, this, this particular documentary was, you know, really just, it was fly on the wall type stuff. I had no idea what was going to happen next. <laughs> and, uh, and just as well, probably. Um, the, uh, you know, so it's, it's a real, it's a challenge between just, I guess, just 
finding out where your space is, you know, and... And having good good support, I can imagine? Well, having good support. I mean, I had amazing support on, on rocket compulsion. I think that was really important. I had a great team back here, mm -hmm. and um, that was really important so that I could go off and do my thing and know that everything else was happening back here. And having a great team on the feature film, too, with my, you know, my fellow producer who really, you know, took over when I went away. I'd say, I'm going away again. You'd go, oh, God, you know, so it's, <laughs> it's, it's getting the right people around you. It's collaboration, you know, with the right people, really, and just having a good team of people and everyone just working together to achieve that goal. Mm. We were talking a little bit earlier about the cruise, um, and, and I really want to explore this a bit more because I know a lot of people in the audience here, you know, you've worked on films or you know people that have, and you know that without a good crew, you just your film's not going to happen. I mean, mm. you can hire the most incredible director, the most wonderful camera, you can get the, be the best actor, but actually without the crew to make it happen, it's, it's just not going to happen. So I'd love to start, Peter, would you mind talking a little bit about some of the crews that you've worked with and also some of the sort of benefits of big versus small? Sure. Well, basically they're the same. You'll see the same guys, um, the same grips, the same uh, camera crew, same lighting guys on a TV commercial. You'll see them on the feature film. You'll see them on a TV series. Mm -hmm. you know, they're like us. They go, they'll go to where the work is, you know, and they can pick and choose their work. And uh, you'll find that the, uh, a camera, uh, the, the, the head of the camera department, the, which is the director of photography, will have his... Um, he'll work usually with the same lighting guys and the same grips. Um, so they keep their team pretty tight. Um, and then, yeah, as I said, you'll see them, you know, I, I, I've worked with um, the, the guys I'm working with at the moment on uh, the rescue show uh, on TV, it's TV. I've worked with like half the crew before on, on feature films, you know, they, they um, because you know, the setups are pretty much the same. We, we're working with digital uh, cameras, everyone these days. Mm -hmm. I don't think anyone's working with um, old film stock anymore, Oops. are they? Anyway, they've learnt they've learnt to you know, deal with the new, the new yeah. um, stuff. So they they uh, they're pretty much the same, and you know they they want to to work the same hours. They want it the same uh, all the you know the. And you know, it, it really it does depend on the director or the director of photography how it's how that's steered and how the crew works, um, and how the first assistant director you know schedules everything. So mm. it's pretty much the same, and it's, and and that's uh, one of the the things that has uh, from the beginning of filmmaking time um, has has remained a constant. The other thing I think that, that it's, it's worth saying, though, I think Pete, you probably experienced this too, that you know when you work with a, a very large crew, and Pete's worked in the states as well in, in telly in the states as have I, uh, and, and you're looking really at 150 people standing on set each day, lining up for their breakfast burritos, you know. And uh, when you're talking when you're talking that many people, it is actually a different political animal, and there and, and there is a there is a kind of political. Mm mechanism that comes into play which does in some respects mm. that does in some ways affect the filmmaking process and it's it's uh, it, it's it can be unwieldy uh, it, it's it's ultra efficient in some ways depending on how the how the crew is coordinated by for example the first assistant director who is in a way the sort of conduit between the producer and the producer in the in the office in inverted commas and the director on the set uh, so the way in which he or she coordinates the crew is very important in terms of their level of efficiency but what I mean really is that there's a kind of politics with a great big uh, you know unwieldy machine like that that doesn't exist if you're doing guerrilla filmmaking which is what you know Greg's been doing with rock compulsion making his own coffee that's a drag in many ways having to chase your, your, your bounce down the street. But another, in another respect, you've got enormous creative freedom when you work like that. And any documentary filmmaker will tell you that that's one of the joys of making documentaries is that you actually can do pretty much whatever the don't hell you want to do. You, can, you, know, <laughs> you don't have to work with children or animals or anything like that. Well, sometimes you probably do children or animals. But, um, but you can, you've got this creative freedom which doesn't necessarily exist when you've got to deal with hundreds and hundreds of people. You find a, a lot more of the egalitarianism that we have in Australia that reflects the country, that we, the working conditions and the American system. You know, they, they kind of started it, you know, they with silent films and whatever, but so that, that kind of structure is still there. What you find is the demarcation of, of the jobs you know, yeah. more, you know, like the, the Teamsters that, that have the trucks and yeah. no one's allowed to drive a truck on a, on a film set. Yeah, that, no one's that allowed is a to, big issue. That's yeah. really, and they, they drive to the, the set, they drive all the, the lighting yeah. rigs, they drive yeah. the... 
the, the actors to the, the set and no one's allowed to drive and, they, and then they sit in their truck and sleep or read the paper all day and rest. then they drive you back. Yeah, well that's a lot of teamsters so jokes in the American weird. industry. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then I, I've got to tell you one little personal thing. When I did that, the Baywatch show, it was the first season in uh, 1989 and I was... Um, I was talking to an extra uh, about, look, I'm just going to come through there. I don't want to, I'm going to run through this crowd. So I'm just, just beware that I'm going to. The first, assist, the first assistant director came over and just yelled at me, saying, "Do not speak to the extra." I yeah. go, what? <laughs> this is a part of the, I'm saying, the oh. demarcation of it. If you speak to the extra and he talks to you back, we've got to pay him more because then he's yeah. an actor. It's true. It's yes, true. I've had that yeah. myself so many the, times. The, the, yeah, yeah. It's, <laughs> it's very unionised. It's very unionised. Yeah. Um, I got in big trouble for yeah. doing that once. And that, 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 that extra could then go to the production office or the first assistant to go like, yeah. you've got to pay, you've got to pay me wages as an actor now because the actor talked yeah. to me. I had a crowd of 300 very people. Very unionised. Yeah, I had yeah. a crowd of 300 people in a room and uh, I was walking by and there was a young boy there and I thought I'd just say, he was looking at me and smiling, I said, you know, you know, hi, you know, pleased to meet you. And I was grabbed by the shoulder and pulled away and it was the first saying to me, you can't talk to him. And I say, why not? Well, yeah, well, we're going to pay yeah, him more. Yeah. I say, I'm not and directing him. Yeah. <laughs> the direct, the director talk cannot talk to the extra because then that extra is now an actor. And they, they get, because the extras get like, you know, $60, $100 a day and the actor will get, you know, a lot more. So, so they, they'll, 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 they'll get, they can build the production for the <laughs> money. Um, yeah, mm. so it's kind of weird. And, yeah, it's like I, I've, done, I've directed some TV over the last couple of years mm. and the same thing, um, it, it, not so much as, as in the States, but um, I was directing a, a group of people that were back, background artists, uh, extras, and I was just saying, like, you can, uh, no, 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 Peter, please don't talk to the extras because then they, same thing. So it is happening here too. Mm -hmm. So yeah. the, the first AD has to tell the extras where to move. There is, <laughs> there frustrating. Is an, yeah, but there is an intense hierarchy on a film set, yeah. Yeah. Um, as I'm sure a lot of you know. I mean, I, I actually um, worked on a film with a director called Martha Fiennes, Rafe and Joe's mm. um, sister, and I'll never forget on the first day of set, I was her assistant, and um, she w asked me a question about the continuity, and she said, please do this, and the continuity woman looked at me, and I've never had a stare like it. <laughs> My God, she came and told me off. She said, don't you mm. dare. You know, and literally, you have your role and you have to stick to it. And I would love yeah. to ask Greg about that hierarchy and dealing with that as a producer. Yeah, it is, it is extraordinarily difficult mm. um, to navigate your way through that uh, hierarchy. Um, as a producer, I find it uh, very claustrophobic. Uh, it's nothing more frustrating than, um, you know, getting a film together, getting it financed, getting out to the set, and you've got so many dreams and aspirations for what you want to be able to do with this film. Mm. Um, even, even a reference to Arthur Storm, Fred Skepsis' new film. And we had one afternoon um, where we were shooting late, we had a lot to do, and then it started raining. It's in Sydney, lovely, <laughs> sunny Sydney. <laughs> so we had Jeffrey Rush up on the steps of the Opera House, pouring rain. And of course, it's not meant to be raining, so we had, you know, umbrellas. He was actually walking with an umbrella when you actually see the shot. And actually, it only stopped raining for like a minute. And we had the track laid and we did the shot, but we lost like an hour and a half. And the thing was that that afternoon, we had scheduled a shot on Macquarie Street. We actually closed off part of Macquarie Street because it's set in 1970. So we had all the cars and we had all the people walking down the footpath, the whole thing. But it had to happen at a certain time. It had to happen at 5.15 because we were shooting middle of last year. We knew the sun was going to be right down low and we knew that's when we had to shoot. Because we were running out of time. We knew we couldn't light Macquarie Street, so we had to then move some things and move a shot to later on. Now, the problem was is that you have to get union approval to do mm. that because we we're going to break a tea break. Now, the tea break is 15 minutes and you have to do it after a certain number of hours. And if you want to do that, you have to get permission from the, from the, from the union to actually allow you to have that break because there's penalties involved. And we had to have votes and we had to get people... Basically, eventually, we had to... Well, Fred had to change the number of shots, oh effectively. So you've got someone like Fred Skepsy having to change the number of shots simply because bad weather, we couldn't make it work, and we couldn't navigate our way through the politics of the, um, of the system, which we couldn't in the amount of time we had. I mean, I remember, it was really funny, um, I was discussing this with the first and the production manager and was saying, you know, come on, we're going to make this work, and then we spoke to the union, and fair enough, I mean, these rules are there for a reason, and I mean, I must you know, say they are there for a reason, but they said, oh, you should have told us yesterday. <laughs> when it wasn't raining. When it wasn't raining. I mean, and we're going, well, we are here now. Um, no, um, 
Yeah. So that, that's the politics. So what you have to do is think on your feet, and that's amazing about someone like Fred. He thought on his feet, worked out the shots, and actually it all works in the film, and you'd never even know. But I remember standing there on Macquarie Street. The sun's going down. We've got, we haven't got the lights. We've got all these actors, you know, and, and cars and everything else. We've only got an hour zone, you know, in regard to... Oh, it was just... Yeah, that was crazy. The sun was going down. So no matter what we did, we wouldn't have been able to get the shots because even if with that 15 minutes... I mean, ultimately, we were able to get the shots that we required, which is very important. But I think the thing is that you can have ABC, you know, if you've got a, you know, 80 people on set, you can try that. Um, but you think you're in a bit, if you can coordinate in five minutes, you can try. I think it also comes down to how long it takes you to get everyone over to the next location. I mean, when you're moving that many people, it's very difficult to know exactly how it's going to go. I mean, of course, I'm talking, you know, from a producer's perspective, I don't have a lot of control over that. I mean, all those sorts of things are actually run by the crew, by my production manager and my, you know, my production coordinators, my, you know, first, my seconds and my thirds. I mean, you know, all my, you know, grips and gaffers and all the trucks and everything has to be moved. So you don't have a lot of control. I mean, you do your best to have people who can really, you know, coordinate everything for you. And that's fantastic. But, I mean, there's nothing... But, you know, you ask that question. And mm. that is... It is a frustration. It rain's a very difficult one, actually, because, mm. you know, when you're talking about a shower of rain... You can, some people in the audience may not know that you can film in, 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 uh, in light rain and, and it doesn't even read in, in mm. some cases. Mm. So, you know, you, you, it's, a, it's a very unpredictable <laughs> factor, rain, mm. uh, unless it's really set in rain that you can mm. sort of call at the beginning of the day and say, listen, we've yeah. got to go to a rain check day and film inside. It, it can be quite difficult to, yeah. to, to make that call. We've got to move everyone now because it's going to set in or is it going to yeah. set in and where are the... You know, all that stuff. And, I'm and very fresh. Directors yeah. of photography get very used to <laughs> reading the clouds for example, and yeah. the, you know the, the, the speed of the wind and how far yeah. the clouds are going and how, how long till you know, a good DP can, or good gaffer mm. who, who assists the director of photography can look up at the sky and tell you, look, I think we've got another 10 minutes of, you know, of, of sun. Yeah. Uh, and then there's going to be a big cloud and then we'll probably yeah. lose light for 20 minutes. Yeah. You know, and that's, that's an expert gaffer. Can well, that's you... right. And then, you know, then you go to a situation where I'm just yeah. shooting it myself. You know, and I'm, I mean, not that I want to do that necessarily, but, you know, or I have a very small crew of like, you know, four, six, four or five people, then you can move things around quickly. You can, you can change things. You can, you know, it's a different animal, as you say. So. If someone could control the weather, they would make a fortune. <laughs> <they're making. laughs> I, I, I swear, um, I just a very quick aside, and then I've got a question from the audience, but um, my brother is a, an EP for an animation studio, and he did a big, big commercial for a big brand. And for a month, every day, they called him three times a day, asking what the weather was going to be like in a month's time on the day of the shoot. And he had to field these calls every day saying, well, I'm really hoping that it's going to be fine and uh, the weather reports don't quite go that far ahead. I mean, people actually lose their minds about the weather trying to plan these things. Mm. And as a producer, it is so hard. But I just mm. wanted to um, open it up, actually, because we're having a great time up here. I hardly even need to ask questions, but I've actually got somebody at the back there and then we'll come to you after. Um, I, I guess what I'd be interested to know from, from all of you, um, being an Australian film festival um, and your um, experience being working internationally and in Australia, what would you say would be uniquely Australian in, in terms of just not only content but making? I think... Uh, what I kind of said before, the egalitarianism of uh, uh, the camaraderie of, uh, you know, a group of people um, that are seeing more of each other than their family probably, you know, a couple of months of a film or, you know, a year or whatever on a TV series. It's a friendlier environment. Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd say that. From a producer-director's perspective, it's the crews uh, to put, invest so much more into the film here than they do in, uh, in, in other countries. That's my experience. So I've, I've had amazing situations where I really find that the, um, you know, the, the crew almost like taken the project on in a personal way. Mm. And you can see it in the way they're working with everyone. It's an amazing kind of um, collaborative process. Yeah. Where in a lot of other countries I find that it's a job. Yeah, I mean, you know, in the States, for example, in television, you'll, get, you'll, you'll have um, you know, William you know, Ford Jr., who's the son of the son of the son of uh, a sound recorders to use to work in the 20s, you know. And so you've got... And so it really is... Um, it's, it's a culture of, you know, of, of, of work for its own sake. Um, and they're, they're kind of... The, the passion, for want of a better description, that drives a lot of film practitioners in Australia doesn't necessarily not exist in the States. On the contrary, of course, there are, uh, there are thousands of passionate film practitioners in the States. Uh, but, but 
you know, it, it's, it's, it's much, uh, we talked about the sort of fragmentation as a result of the hierarchy before. I think that does inform a lot of the, um, uh, the, the sort of work methods in, in, the, in the states. But as far as content goes, I think, I think we're constantly redefining what it means to be uniquely Australian. So I think that's a very hard question to answer. I found that yeah. um, even in the makeup department it was hierarchical. In, in, America, in America, the you'll see it's usually an older older man in the makeup and hair department, and then the, it's it goes mm -hmm. down in junior divisions before, before that. Here it's um, it's you know a, a, you know a bunch of uh, um, females uh, who are in the heading the makeup department. Um, so it's kind of that's just one example, but it's uh, it, yeah the, the structure is more. Um, hierarchical. I think it's because also in Australia people are doing a whole, you know, different different levels of work. So I'll be working with a with a, a key grip on a project where he has, you know, he has two best boys or you know a whole lot of people working with him, and then I'll be doing a, a small shoot with him, and he'll be carrying the dolly up the stairs, you know, with me, you know, trying to get up the stairs. And so, you know, there's that balance where those people actually do chip in because they are doing the smaller jobs as well as the bigger jobs. Everyone's kind of in to try. Everybody to rolls up their and, sleeves. And, and, and international yeah. actors who love who love the process will often comment on how much fun they have working in Australia because they're not, uh, you know, if, for example, you know. <coughs> People get a big shock if you sit down and, and, and eat with the crew, eat your lunch with the crew <laughs> in the States. They do, as an actor. You know, they'll, they'll think, what the hell is she doing here? You know, I'm, I'm a crew member. And, and, but it's part of the course in, in Australia. Mm. And so I think that, you know, people uh, from, you know, the UK, the States, wherever, find that very refreshing, as a matter of fact, for the most part, unless they're, you know, unless they're, you know, so kind of culturally kind of... Uh, unless they're just, you know, overly used to the compartmentalised thing. I think they find a refreshing change. Mm. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, so we have another question here yeah. and then we'll come to you afterwards. Um, I just would like to ask the audience to indulge me for a minute. Um, I'm here as a recent drama school grad, my friend Chris, and um, I thought of this question when you guys were talking about the hierarchy and, and that you can choose your roles. Of course, I'm coming from a place where... I can't wait till I can choose what I do when I get people asking me to do things. Um, and the advice we get straight out of drama school is go, go get them, go, you're going to the Dungog Film Festival, take your headshots with you and give them to producers. <laughs> and I think that's cringeworthy. But am I being too shy? As a director, producer, and think back to when you first started out, what do you think is appropriate for new actors who don't have a name, who are just starting out, to get out there and actually go up to the producers and directors that they really respect. You should certainly start by saying your name. <laughs> <laughs> and my agent. <laughs> That'll be later. No, um, I would love your advice. So... I mean, from my perspective, I'm, I'm always looking at uh, when, you know, people do send through headshots or, or whatever. I mean, I'm always looking at what they've done, you know, I, and whether it's a short film, whether it's something they even shot themselves, I don't really mind. I mean, I've cast people from little demo tapes they've done. Um, I've cast people from stage where they've never done any film before. Um, you know, I'll go and look at some plays, even if they're amateur plays. I'll, I'll, if I hear of someone, especially casting directors, you know, I guess it's a matter of, I always speak to the casting director to see what they know, what schools or whoever might have, you know, people who are just coming out or have done some things, you know, graduation, you know, performances, I'll, I'll go along to those if I hear of someone, if I'm casting something. So generally it's, it's a whole mixed bag of things, but I'll always look, want to see something, <laughs> you know, so I've got an idea you know, what kind of performance and, you know, that I'd be, you know, getting from someone. But I've had someone film, which ended up one of my films, who just filmed something in their bedroom. You know, it was just, you know, this guy, he just did it up against the wall, just, you know, sucked the camera up and just filmed this performance for this film. I was looking for a whole bunch of boys um, for this film and, you know, he did an amazing, uh, amazing job. Gave that to the casting director. The casting director then gave it to me, said, look, they thought it was very good. So it did, that one did come through a whole, I mean, it had already gone through a whole process before it even got to me, but, uh, but I, they did it. I'd say, uh, I'd say hang in there and uh, it's the hardest and vaguest area you'll be in if you're making this your career. Um, see, see who's doing what in a, in a production sense. Get the trade magazines like Encore, uh, online um, <clears throat> magazines that see, have a production list. See what's in pre-production, production, and see who's making that film. Uh, if you've got material, it's a bit of a catch-22 situation because you probably haven't got stuff on a, a, re a reel yet. 
but when you do, get it together and send it to the person who you th who's going to be about to cast or mm. about to go into that production, and um, with a CV, photo, and and just send it out. Keep sending it out to the casting person that's doing that film or TV mm. series in um, in a few months' time. Get yeah, it, just um, get it out there. Yeah, yeah I agree, yeah. Pete. I mean, I think with the greatest respect to agents, the the wonderful agents in the country, uh, they uh, for the most part don't uh, make it their business to mould and shape an actor's career. And so there is a lot of onus on you to be uh, aggressive. Is is perhaps too strong? Uh, I mean, I think it it depends. You got to do what's right for you. You've got to take the approach that's right for you. But just by way of example, I remember when you know this is a long time ago. But when I first moved to Melbourne from uh, Sydney. Uh, years ago, which was much to the chagrin of my agent who would preferred me to be in Sydney because it was much more the centre of things in those days. Um, I, Tom, my now husband, said, you've got to make some phone calls. You've got to call people up, you know, tell them you're in town, tell them you want to work. I said, I can't do that. Couldn't possibly call and say, you know, please use me. I'm far too proud, you know. But I, eventually he kind of wore me down. I did make a call to ABC Casting. I got a gig within a couple of weeks. You know, I mean, it, it, you know, there, there's a, you've got to kind of play it as, 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 as you find it, but I think that there is something to be said for being um, proactive, thinking outside the square, and with current technology, as Greg said, uh, it's possible for you to film something in your kitchen. And if you've, if, you're, if you've got the skills, then you've got something to show for yourself. And I would advise that you, you think about that, think in those terms too, but simply just do it. Do as much work as you possibly can. Yeah, and find out who the casting director is. I think it's very important. If you know who the casting director is, they, they are very willing to, to look at work. That's their and, job. Yeah. yeah. So I think they're the people. Because my, most of my recommendations come through my casting people. I trust them because that's why I've got them there. Can I just make one quick point, which is that we are actually podcasting this session. So if you are going to make any extra comments, just motion for the mic back because then it's going to be recorded. But I wasn't actually being facetious when I said that before. I actually meant, if you wouldn't mind passing the mic back, for you to say your name. You know, um, Basically, we are here. You're amongst a group of filmmakers. Um, we have a lot of people here. You know, introduce yourself if you're going to ask a question at a public forum like this. You know, what's, what's your name? My name is Tammy Sussman. Tammy, lovely to meet you. Lovely to meet um, you. What I would advise you, it's, it, this seems like kind of um, tangential advice, one of my favourite words actually, um, but befriend people's assistants. When you call up a casting director and call up a producer, call up whoever, they've all got assistants and the assistants work hard for them and they often are the filter for those people. And they're the people that you need to remember the names of, get the email addresses of, keep in touch with, don't be pushy, but just say, I'm just touching base, just wondering how things go with you, if you meet socially, follow up. Just keep very clear records in your mind, in your books, if you're that organized, of who's working for who. Because people move around, they make recommendations, you might have a last minute thing, oh my God, oh my God, do you know anybody? Quick, we need somebody, and you might have just sent an email. It's amazing how that can actually help you out. And I've assisted a lot of people over the years, and I have to say that they do turn to you and say, oh, do you know anybody for this? And especially for young people starting out, you've got to stick together. Thank you. Hi, my name's Brooke Miller. Um, I'm on the advertising and media side of things and I just wanted to ask a question um, with the fragmentation of media content and the, just the absolute you know, plethora of ways to watch and experience. Um, brands are constantly now looking for pipeline, you know, brand-funded content and they're looking for clever people to create interesting, unique things that are going to engender loyalty back to their brands and make them look fabulous. They're all becoming media engines in themselves, these brands. And I was wondering if you've sort of got any insights for me as someone who is trying to be a connector for brands with great content, some of the successes that have maybe you've come across, you know, internationally, um, and I guess a philosophy for brand marketers when they're creating this sort of content. You know, don't aim too high, otherwise it's not gonna sort of, you know, be you know, be punchy with what we're trying to do and don't sort of be too commercial. I mean, it, there's that wonderful sort of place in the middle where it just works and it connects for people and I was just wondering if you could talk to that a bit. Well, I mean, obviously when you're doing any kind of brand, I mean, so you're referring to like a program that you, you generate a program that is a brand in itself. A, a program of its own sort of um, thing that, you know, it may be a supporting program for a particular um, concept or, yeah. It's okay, well, look, I'll talk to, actually, <laughs> how you ask that, um, my, my uh, fellow producers on Rocket Compulsion, 
uh, actually are doing a, a series at the moment which is called Storm Surfers, which is a series. And um, that's a very strong brand in itself. And I mean, everything is then focused and targeted. Actually, um, Mark Zanella have been very, you know, very careful and Mark's particularly, particularly just trying to find how to, how to focus that brand and make it something which now has become a brand into itself. And I think, look, that is very important because you can break out into, you can really, again, cross-platform the whole thing, you know, and I think with Storm Service in particular, it's actually a 3D show. So they're doing both, uh, they're doing a feature documentary, they're going to be doing television documentaries, there will be web apps, there will be, I mean, it's going to have that whole cross-platform. Uh, you know, strong concepts, you know, and I think you've got to always be looking at what's going to actually travel outside the square. You know, you've got to look at what's going to be able to become a brand in itself, and I think it's very important. I think you should always consider that when you come to that sort of programming. And understanding the audience. I mean, I think any, mm. any branding is really about targeting an, an, an understood audience that's been well-researched and, and, and uh, uh, you know, well-founded research, I think, you know, and then identifying that and not and, and identifying the platforms that are going to reach that audience most specifically. For example, you know, you're not going to make a 3D film if you're advertising baked beans, you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, so you've got to understand what, you know, what you're using the platforms for and who you're trying to get to and whether they actually have access to those platforms at this point, all that stuff. Sigrid, can I ask, um, you recently did this wonderful short that we had, the Telegram Man in the festival. Um, have you done many shorts and what was it, I mean, what was it about working on a short film that actually attracted you? Well, there were, there were a, number of, a number of factors, but um, the, the name Jack Thompson uh, wasn't, <laughs> uh, was, was one of the most important factors for me personally, because uh, I go way back with Jack. He's a friend, and uh, I really wanted to, to have the opportunity to work with Jack again. And James Ketty, who's in the audience tonight, today, tonight. <laughs> it's just been one long day. three days. Um, he, um, he approached me with this wonderful um, script and uh, it actually came originally through Jack. I heard about the project through Jack, as a matter of fact, who was, who was um, I think, probably um, calling in favours, don't you think, James, perhaps, from a few old mates? And um, James had accessed the rights to this wonderful short story by John Boyne. So, of course, John Boyne was, who wrote Boyne in the Striped Pyjamas. So, of course, there were a number of, you know, really um, important factors. Because my, my role in the film is very small, but I, I wanted the... I have done a few shorts. I, I think sh shorts, it's a, very it's a very interesting sort of discussion um, topic, actually, too, because it, it brings to mind the kind of way in which we talk, we were talking about this earlier, how does television communicate in, in ways which film does not? Short is a very good uh, sort of example of, 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 the, of, of, of a, a different kind of use of film. If you're, if you're making a short film that's only, and you've only got 10 minutes to convey your story, every single shot must take the, drive the story forward. You don't have any time for any kind of wastage. It must be absolutely lean. And, and so it's a very good um, uh, exercise in filmmaking skills to create a good short. Mm. And, and it's mm. therefore a very interesting exercise for an actor to work on shorts because there, there can be no wastage for the actor either. So I, I, I welcome the opportunity to, to work in that form, yeah. Mm. Peter, before we go back to the audience, and we will in just a second, I've got a gentleman just there who can answer the next question. Peter, you mentioned um, when we were talking about this that for you, the, it's sort of almost irrelevant the size of the screen, that you're doing what actors and performers and players have been doing since you know, ancient history, ancient Rome. So for you, do, are you open to any sort of project? Is there one particular aspect that you enjoy more than the other? Has that changed over the years? No, the process, I love the process of, of um, performing before a camera uh, on stage, probably about the same. But, um, uh, you know, the, the difference I, I, I find with film and TV is uh, probably the, 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 the amount of work you've got to do in a day. And, um, you know, we, we've worked with, say, say, screen time. Uh, we do, say, on, t on a TV soap, say if you're doing a soap opera, um, there's... 25 minute, 24, 25 minutes of screen time a day on, um, on a TV series, about 11 or 12 minutes a day. On a feature film, three minutes maybe, mm. maybe five yeah. at the outs, outside. So it's that, time, it's that amount of work you've got to do as an actor and the words you've got to spout out every day um, are, are just a bit sort of, you know, more intense mm. on a on TV show. Um, but no, the process for me is... Um, I love it. I love getting the work that I've done at, at, at home and bringing it to the set, working with the other actors, rehearsing with them and coming to, you know, the, um, you know, when that uh, clapperboard comes down and the, the adrenaline starts, it's just that whole, you know, bringing that into 
and then the crew are usually quiet and still and it's your moment so it's that time between action and cut is really kind of a sacred time for me and and, and uh, everyone's sort of watching you and um, I, I, that's the, from the day I, I first started till 30 years later so really yeah. is, how does it feel does that resonate with I, you I, it does absolutely there's just a, no, another thing I'd add to that uh, that, that, that there's, it's a it's a theory I've, I've I, I kind of thought of this a couple of years ago and it hadn't really quite occurred to me that what happens for an actor I've often compared it to sort of jumping off a cliff with a bungee rope tied to your ankle because it's very much like that and a lot of actors will tell you that if something scares the wits out of them that's a recommendation to try it to do the job you know if there's something the more it scares me the more I should you know I, I should do it but um, having said that the other the point I was going to make was about being in the moment there's a lot of emphasis in you know a lot of religions for example you know Buddhists and meditators are always seeking um, uh, absolutely sort of uh, the the, that, that, that space in the moment, living right in the now. I think for an actor what happens in that moment between the clapperboard going down and the director calling cut is that if they're actually in the zone, they are right in the moment, right there, right now, and no, no one can kind of change that for them. And that's an incredibly exhilarating feeling, a little bit like flying or something. I don't know, I've, I've ever flown, but you know, <laughs> except in my dreams. But I mean, it's, it, there is an incredible buzz and adrenaline rush with, uh, that, that comes with that. And, and, but also, a sort of, there's a kind of momentary peace as well. And uh, I think that that's something that, uh, that only occurred to me fairly recently, that some, it's something we seek in, in, as I said, in meditation and in all sorts of other ways. But for actors, we can kind of find it through our work. Mm. And, it hasn't, and it hasn't changed, as I said to, before we, we came up. Um, it, it really, our process hasn't changed. It's a, it's a 360 degree way, way, way of working than the rest of the crew, the crew and the director and whatever, is that we're, we're looking, we're going, we're coming from an internal area of you know, expressing ourselves uh, to service the story and the writing and um, and the vision of the director and all that, we got to we got to sort of come from inside. So we are working in a unique way from the rest of the people working on that on that project, and that hasn't changed. Um, you know, you can have digital. You can have when film first came along. We're still doing what they did in ancient Rome when they walked into those open air theaters. You know, they had to do their homework, walk on, and say those words. So you know, to me, it's like something that's um, an ancient through line. That we're doing, and I always always think of that. You know, it's like no matter how technical things get, and digital, and and three D, and all that sort of stuff, we're still actually servicing a story. It's basic storytelling. I mean, you know, you, you could you could say it sound, might sound overly romantic, but you know, in in some ways, the big screen and even the small screen has replaced the uh, you know the campfire yarn. Uh, you know, we used to we used to sit around mm. the campfire and, and have a chat, and uh, you know, and we we sit around the we sit around another kind of light now and yeah. the big screen even more so you are completely transported in the by the big screen as, as you would have been when you looked into the campfire and listened to someone tell you a story but it's it's the same kind of thing that's going on well absolutely as, even as a you know as a director i mean you really do the same thing i mean no matter what the medium is or whether you know it's directing for the stage or directing for the small screen or directing I mean, you kind of have to get into that, um, you know, into that space where you're, you know, you're just presenting a story, you're storytelling. I mean, and, you know, we would have been, you know, a thousand years ago, even, you know, even a hundred years ago, would have been in front of that campfire mm. or, um, you know, on a stage, you know, getting our actors to to present the, you know, our our interpretation of the piece, you know, and um, and that's the thing. I mean, you've got to be able to express that and let that then live, and no matter what screen it's on, mm. and uh, that's, that's right. you know, that's the exciting True. thing about it. Mm. We have a question here. I'm sorry, you're going to be next. I forgot about our <laughs> friend up the front. I'm not in the industry, but Greg, uh, just talking about something back to something you said earlier. Given you know the dominance of digital and the need to be cross-platform, what what is the role of film these days? Just interested in that. Well, you know, interestingly, um, we've done a lot of tests on this because I shoot digital as well as shoot film. Um, so I guess the moment, right now at this juncture, I could I could inform you in a year's time it'll be different. So. Uh, when oh, let's let's inf I'll go back about six months because that's probably even more relevant than what's happening now because there are new things coming out right now. Um, what we found was that digital is is a fantastic platform. It's really versatile and easy, but it actually doesn't save you very much money on a on a big budget. Um, when you've got the big crews, it really doesn't make a lot of difference. Um, we found the costs associated to doing a film which was shot fully digitally on the Genesis or a camera like that. Um, the acquisition and actually the grading on set and having the extra people on set to wrangle the cables and everything else was actually more cumbersome and actually, if anything, would not really save us a lot of time. 
as opposed to shooting on film with a Panavision where you've got to clap a loader and you just kind of have the camera and you just move the camera around. So we found there, okay, there was a lot more expense in the, um, in the film stock um, and the processing, but in reality that was offset again by other costs that were associated to going digital back then. Then, so there was a slight saving with going digital, but in regard to a, 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 you know, a feature film, which is what I'm referring to, uh, it was not enough to actually equate a decision that would be... So your decision would have to be purely on the aesthetics of the actual medium. Now, what we found with the medium was that the digital is very good, 444, it's very high quality, you've got a lot you can see into the blacks, it's fantastic, but it doesn't have the stop latitude that film has. Um, any DPs here? I think it's six stops with with negative, um, I'm a producer, but I think it's six stops. <laughs> four to four, it's quite a lot, uh, where digital will only give you, say, three stops, only half the amount. So if you're shooting a, a sky and it's really, you know, sunny day, and you get, want the blue sky, you get your polarizers up, your shadow areas are gonna go to black. Now, on film, you can, you can pull down your exposure a little bit, you can still get up to that sky, so when you're grading it, but you can also see into the shadow areas. With digital, when you actually rack into that kind of exposure, you're gonna find that your blacks are gonna go solid black or your sky's gonna go white. And there's nothing you can do about it. So we had one shoot, quick example, where we had someone who was sweating and they had, there was light pinging off their ear, for example. Uh, we shot it on film, um, and that was all fine. We were able to grey it out, and we got a nice little, you know, more of a glow on the ear rather than a ping. Um, about four months later, I was doing another shoot, very similar situation, same kind of lighting situation, shooting on a very high-end digital camera. Nothing we could do about it because it just went to white. I mean, it was nothing there, no detail. There's another thing, too, that a makeup artist brought this up with me recently. He was talking about the difference between digital and film, and I know this is changing all the time, mm. and this yeah. is what Greg was saying, that we're getting much, much better at, uh, at sort of um, duplicating the, the kind of film image much using better. digital. Yeah. However, I think, I, I, th I think I'm probably right still, mm. Greg, in mm. saying that there's something about digital that does not duplicate the, the, the softness of edges that you get with film. Um, there's something about, you know, it, it, it's, and somehow, in some ways, this is probably the wrong word, but it sort of objectifies everything. It makes everything look kind of like an object. It gives everything slightly, a slightly harder edge, like a cup. Whereas when we see a human being, there's skin, there's softness, there's, there's, a, there's a sort of romantic kind of, um, you know, image that yeah. we cannot duplicate yet in digital. That is changing though, and I and mean, is, I would say, I would say actually there are some amazing cinematographers now around that are shooting digitally where you just can't tell whether it's film or digital, really, yeah. and if it's lit properly, if it's but a controlled you know, environment. Within, you know, every six months it's sort of getting better. Oh look, absolutely, but what's going to happen, what is going to happen is that soon enough there's going to be, it's the algorithm between how much data you need to store, because each stop is an extra bit of data. So that's really all it's coming down to now, is how much data can you actually get into the camera or onto the tape or onto the hard drives at any given time? And that's where the problem is, it's actually acquisition. So eventually, as we all know, acquisition is going to increase, and eventually I believe digital will be the same as film. I mean, there you go, there's a statement. But I do, I do think it's going to happen, I mean, it's got to, because yeah. I've seen some amazing films shot digitally. I, I, really, I thought they were filmed. And I think on um, Kodak's website, or someone at the moment, there is a website at the moment where a bunch of filmmakers went out and shot a scene, and they shot it on four different cameras, including 35, and the same scene. And they actually clearly, I don't, unfortunately I don't know the name of the site, but it, it, um, I think you could do a search on it. But it is quite incredible, to sort of, and actually very clearly it shows what the, what the differences are. But it's also having the technicians that know how to use them properly. Well, these were, yeah, and these were cinematographers that did this, yeah. and they were film cinematographers that did it. So it was really yeah. interesting to see what That's the what's going to change too, is that gonna, they're going to be more and more, there's going to yeah. be more and more expertise developed in yeah. this area to be well, able to I, I heard, digital Yeah, well, I heard yesterday that um, Lucas is shooting something, or one of his team is shooting something at the moment on a 5D. Really? Mm. Or is it a D5? Uh, it's, <laughs> you know, it is a 5D. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a Canon camera that's very popular at the moment. Yeah. Actually, the other, the other, just alluding to this makeup artist who talked about this, he, he was talking about makeup for digital, for example, which is a different skill. You know, you've actually got to make the makeup go right into the skin because you can see everything sitting on the surface of the skin with yeah. digital. Mm -hmm. you're still, that's still a bit of a problem. The so older you get as an actor, the less you like HD. <laughs> <laughs> But I think I see every wrinkle. Yeah, I mean everyone's embracing it, and I know Technicolor in England has just come out with look-up tables for the 5D. 
which has just been released, and it's a free download. So they're expecting people to be using that kind of format. And what it does is they've got their own setup, like the Philip Bloom setups. Everyone knows Bloom. Uh, but what they do is you wind in a certain contrast ratio into your 5D, and then you use this lookup table, which is a downloadable lookup table from, from, uh, from their website, and you put that into colour, um, which is Apple, and then uh, True Final Cut Pro. And it'll give you an amazing result. So I tested it last week, and it just looked really good. So mm. there you go. That's what's happening. Look, so much food for thought. I, I want to just go on all afternoon, but I know how exhausted our panellists are up here. But we have one last question, um, and then we're going to have to wrap up. I'm sorry about that, but please ask away. Hi, uh, my name's Nathan Hunt. I'm a director-producer. And uh, this is a question for all of you. Um, I definitely agree with us heading in a cross-media, transmedia direction. Um, you know, we live, the secret pointed this out earlier, and we live in a country that has a minute population when compared to the states. I mean, they've got a, an audience potentially accessible to over 300 million people. Um, so therefore, their revenue streams and their profit margins are, are a lot higher. So that, you know, they've got a, a lot more higher chance of breaking even or, or, or just. Um, and, you know, we're, we're a unique country. We're a Western country that's isolated from the rest of the Western world, um, us in New Zealand. So... Um, we have to work harder to access our audience. Why is it that we stay so niche? I mean, we have a beautiful film culture and which has been moulded by our history our, um, and, and our location. Why are we staying so niche um, in terms of our, uh, our style, our production, uh, the way that we, uh, I suppose, our filming styles, our stories? Why aren't we making um, our products internationally accessible? Why do we send, tend to make TV, our TV and our film productions so emotionally poignant and only accessible to this country as opposed to opening up and uh, embracing the international community? But wouldn't you say that with all markets? I mean, of course, with a French film or a German film or a Hungarian film or whatever, they may be, they're, you know, they're specifically directed to their market. And they may play internationally, but they do make quite a few films that are actually, which we'd never see here. So therefore, should we consider that Australian filmmaking is, uh, you know, if we're doing something which is, as you say, more niche, it's just that we're creating our own identity and we're doing our own little films, like as any other country, like an Italian film. Or I mean, there are lots of Italian films made every year, lots of French films, lots of, you know, as I say, Russian films. So I think it's important that we do have our own identity and that we make our own films. But I think we should open up to the world and I think we should be doing uh, content that we think could play to an international audience, but not to the detriment of the, of the concept or to the film, because I think so much, going back to the story, that we're story, storytellers. And if there's a story that, that, that touches you and, and resonates with you as a director or as a producer, then try to make it and try to be truthful to that material and, and make that program. Um, let it resonate. And if it turns out that it is more focused towards Australia, does that mean that we shouldn't make it? I don't think that valid. I don't think a, f a film is, you know, is um, is valid because you know it has to sell over overseas. And and what does that mean anyway? How do yeah. you, how, how do you do that? How do you actually write something? This is this is a constant yeah, argument just... that's put forward in the Australian industry. You know, we might, we should be more commercial. What does that mean? There are two parts to the question, and one one of them is that's worth discussing is the fact that we are a subsidised industry, necessarily so. I believe. I still argue that we we need government help to to survive and to keep our heads above water. The idea that we can survive on our own is still is still really a myth. I think. But um, my, my personal view, and a lot of people will disagree with me. Maybe maybe Greg mm. will disagree. With me. I think um, we should be having a lot stronger output. I think we should be making, be making spending the money on many more films with lower budgets. That's that's my personal mm. view, and uh, and I think that you know, suppose I think we should be making forty rather than twenty films, for example, I do a agree year. With you. And I think that if you did <laughs> yes. this, if you did this, there would be necessarily um, the, the so-called niche uh, factor would 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 dissipate at least somewhat because there would be many more opportunities for creative risk. Sorry to come back at you, but um, I, I agree with everything that you've said, and and I think. Uh, I think there needs to be a, a balance that is, um, you know, we need to approach this and, and be synergetic with um, mm. making things that are commercial uh, and not losing our, um, our own I style and, and what's important to us as, you know, as cultural filmmakers. Mm. Um, but I, I do think that you know, I, the, the cross-media um, really is, is the only thing that's going to help us access our, uh, our audience, make our, our audience accessible to us as well. Um, yeah. So... Um, and striking that balance, being able to uh, bring in money for us, I think we should try and, and, and aim to be slightly more commercial, 
so we can give ourselves more money to be able to punch out more films. Look, I do agree that um, it's important to have a balance of works, you know, in any, any kind of um, creative work, whether it's, um, you know, any form of art. Uh, but in regard to commercialism, yeah, look, absolutely. I come from, uh, you know, marketing background originally, so I'm very aware of uh, it's very important to, to, to capture an audience. And I must say that every project I do, we do take that in consideration from the very beginning. I mean, we try to do stories which are Australian, um, that have, because I am Australian, I can't help that, you know? <laughs> I am what I am. And I do projects that, that touch me and that I feel that I can do something with. Um, if that makes them distinctly Australian, that's fantastic. But I don't actually, but I do think it's, I mean, everything that I do, I try to, you know, I hope to think it's going to find an audience everywhere. And, and it is exciting to, to create something in Australia, you know, in, you know, in your living room, you're writing this thing, and then, you know, you see a review from a television release in Russia, you know, and someone really loves it over there. And, you know, you're thinking, Oh my goodness! You know, and this a good story has, uh, you know, is is a universal. And someone, someone's watching in Russian, you know, yeah. or it's been dubbed to Russian, and I always wonder what they're actually saying. Um, <laughs> Peter, yes, would you like to have? Well, a I guess it, why is it, it's. I've been trying to think all through this. Why? Yeah, it's a bit open-ended question, and it probably comes down to the storyteller himself, the person who's created the film, as a as a, an idea, a, a concept into um, uh, the the. the words on the page to um, to get from that concept to a bunch of people on a set to make a film to edit to, revolves evolves it makes a whole lot of passion and and energy and, and time to maintain all that passion and energy and I think um, the, the the story that the person first devised is what um, it come, what it comes down to, isn't it? And that, and that, and that story is usually uh, maybe a dark suburban tale of the of agony that they had as a child. So that, that's that's what's maintained their storytelling. I think that's why a lot of the stories are in in that niche. And um, <clears throat> you, know, you usually don't find a person who's going to make um, you know uh, uh, a blockbuster Hollywood film uh, is is that that storyteller. So that, that requires a, a whole studio to, to make that, that project. I, I don't know if I've really answered that but mm. question, but I think it's, it's, it's down to that person who's telling the story. Um, and they're the ones, they're the people who have made the, the, the niches of those Australian and New Zealand kind of films. Telling the story that you know. Telling the story yeah. that you know. And, mm. and, and, yeah. and maintaining it, yeah. <clears throat> With the passion you have as the, as the first person who had the idea. But also mm. filmmaking is such alchemy. It's so unpredictable. You don't know what is going to be commercial. I mean, I know filmmakers no. that get together and mm. collaborate and they think they've got a hit on their hands and it's a yeah. big fat dud. What, what, Tom, what Tom, Tom made an interesting point too. I think that, that there, is, there is a kind of, and it is it perhaps a bit what you're talking to too, is that you know, there, is a, there has been an obsession with kind of dark storytelling and you know, there are very few filmmakers, for example, who are making films about middle-class Australians, which does take up a vast percentage of our population. You know, um, sort of, uh, so you know, there are, but these things happen in cycles and I think that's another factor that's worth considering. I really wish we could keep going because there's so much more to talk about and you've had such wonderful questions. I can't thank my panellists enough. I'm claiming you as mine. Um, <laughs> Peter Feltz, Sigrid Thornton, Gregory Reed. Round of applause, everybody. Thank you so much.